All right, let's everybody find their seats. All right, let's open with a word of prayer. Our righteous Father, we give you thanks for allowing us to gather again on the Lord's Day. We ask that you would help us, Father, to, um, to learn what we need to learn today, and that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Guide me as I teach, Father, that I would teach truth, and that I would teach clearly. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. All right. So today's lesson will be on chapter 27 of the Confession, and that's of the communion of the saints. Uh, having listened to Matt talk last week about the church, uh, now let's talk. Now let's discuss how believers relate to one another in the uh, in the life of the church. Um, this is a, this is an important doctrine, even though it might not seem like it at first, especially compared to the giants of justification by faith or the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and this chapter is actually only two paragraphs long, so it's very easily breezed over. But this doctrine is important and is actually subtly under attack today. With the rise of uh, Zoom church due to COVID, the trend already to have online church has just increased. Um, and this is wrong. Online church is not church. Church is more than watching a worship service. It is also the fellowship of the saints. This is a key part of what God has commanded for the life of the believer, and we should not neglect that. So hopefully this lesson will demonstrate why this is such a big deal. And as a note, uh, today there's actually going to be a lot of scripture reading, so uh, be prepared to read. So first I'm going to outline chapter 27, and then we'll read the paragraphs. So... Chapter 27, as I said, was in two paragraphs, and each paragraph is broken into an A section and a B section. Paragraph 1A, and I apologize if not everybody is able to see this, but um, paragraph 1A is um, broken into uh, uh, three parts. Uh, so one, its redemptive foundation is union with Christ. It's realization, and that has subparts by his spirit and by faith. Part B is its qualification, and part C is its scope. Paragraph 1B is the general definition of communion of the saints, and that's broken into three parts. Um, its bond, its benefits, and its obligations. Paragraph 2A um, is uh, its ex uh, specific expressions, and that's broken into two parts. Part A, their identity with two subparts, spiritual services and physical services, and then part B, their recipients, and then paragraph 2B is just one part, the necessary limitation of the communion of the saints. So uh, with that, could I get somebody to read paragraph 1 of chapter 27? All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head by his spirit and faith, although they are not made thereby one person with him, have fellowship in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces, and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, in an orderly way, as to conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. And then could you just go on to paragraph two? Saints by profession are bound to maintain an holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God, and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification. 
as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion according to the rule of the gospel that was specially to be exercised by them in the relation wherein they stand, whether in families or churches, yet as God offers opportunity is to be extended to all the household of faith, even all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, nevertheless, their communion one with another as saints doth not take away or infringe the title or propriety which each man hath in his goods and possessions. Thank you, Andrew. All right, so moving on to question two, define communion. So communion has to do with sharing. Um, just a quick Google search will reveal the definition. The sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is on a mental or spiritual level. Um, and while this is obviously very important, I think Waldron captures an additional important aspect of communion. And he brings this up. Uh, he brings up the example of NATO. NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is a communion of nations that share information as well as military assets. So while the sharing of thoughts is important, our sharing is not merely spiritual in communion, but is also physical. We should want to help our brothers and sisters who have physical needs as well as, uh, while not neglecting the spiritual. So think of communion as uh, common union. Uh, we, because we are brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, share what we have and what we are in order to love one another. Um, does anybody have any questions about the uh, definition of communion? Any comments they want to make? Amen. And that actually rolls into question three. What is the foundation of the communion of saints and how does that limit the demands we make upon our brethren? So the foundation of the communion of saints is our union with Christ. We are first in Christ and then in communion with each other by our communion with Christ. The foundation of our communion with each other is not uh, because of common humanity. If that were the case, there would be nothing special about the communion between believers as opposed to the communion between unbelievers. The reason why we are brothers and sisters in uh, the reason why we are brothers and sisters is because God is our father in Jesus Christ. So um, uh, scriptural proof for this, um, John 8, 42 through 44. Um, and this is uh, Jesus speaking to uh, the Pharisees. Jesus said unto them, if God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. Ye are your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So Jesus is telling people here that God is not their father. Therefore, they don't have the same communion that we would have because we do actually have God as our father. And thus we are all siblings in a spiritual sense. Um, we, so we are not united with them in the same way. And therefore, we should not act as if we are in communion with them. Uh, James 4, 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? 
Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. We as believers are to live holy and upright lives. We cannot have the same level of fellowship with unbelievers as with believers. And this includes even professed Christians. If someone professes to be a Christian, but is either unrepentant or holds to heretical doctrine, we should not walk in fellowship with them. This can only confuse the world as to what a true Christian is and uh, let the person who thinks they are a Christian uh, continue in their mistaken belief. If the foundation of unity is in Christ, then we must have that foundation in order to be unified. So the second part of this question was, how does... um, How does the unity in Christ limit our demands upon one another? Um, It means that we don't have a right to our brother's property. And this is is important. Um, The commandment, thou shalt not steal, is still in effect. It's part of the moral law and hasn't changed. And um, for New Testament example of this, we have Ephesians 4, 28. And this is Paul speaking to the church at Ephesus. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he might have to give to him that needeth. So in order for thou shalt not steal to mean anything, we have to have a concept of what is mine and what is someone else's. Otherwise, what does it mean to steal? So even in the New Testament era, we have a concept of private property rights. And um, some would want to argue for a more socialistic view of how the church should operate. Um, And they point to the early church, the example in Acts. Um, They'd have the view that church is more of a commune or that um, people, all of the people should own all of the property. And there's not a concept of personal property. Uh, And they're willing to advocate for a system that would take the property of others to make it common. Um, So the examples that they bring up as I said, we're in Acts. Could I get somebody to read um, Acts 2, 44 and 45? And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And then could I get somebody to read Acts 4, 32 through 35? the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of these things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with the great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked all who were possessors of land or houses sold them brought the proceeds of these things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had So that obviously at least sounds on the surface like it might be denying that the early church had a concept of private property, but I think this is, um, and that thus we should do uh, the same, but I think this is bad for three reasons. First of all, this is an example, not a command. And while example is helpful as a guide for how we are to live the Christian life, it's not necessarily something that's commanded. Um, Two, obviously, we just went through a scriptural example that contradicts um, the idea that there should be no private property. And um, part or three, I don't think the argument actually fits the data of the book of Acts. Um, They didn't give away their property immediately to the apostles, but they sold as people had need. 
implying that before they sold it, it was their property. And we actually get an explicit affirmation of this. Could I get somebody to read Acts 5, 1 through 4? This is the story of um, Ananias and Sapphira. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold the possession and kept that part of the price, his wife also being privy to it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was, not in, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in your heart? Thou hast not lied unto man, but unto God. So that, that last part is the important part, right? Um, while it remained in your possession, wasn't it your own to do with uh, how you would do? So obviously, Peter is not denying the concept of personal property here. Um, I think the example that we have in Acts is just more showing the love of the early church um, that they had for one another, that they were willing to sell their property to support one another. And I, this I do not condemn at all, um, uh, even if somebody wanted to do that today. Um, if anyone wants to sell their possessions to give to their poor brother, that has the blessing of God on it. And I would not want to take away from that. However, we want to make sure that we do not become conceited and think that what's our brother's property should really be ours. Um, and then we have the right to take, take it by whatever means, whether it be legal means or whatever. Um, we're not one in that sense. If we were one directly, then perhaps we might have a claim on another's property, but we're one through God. And therefore, and God, being God, has the right to assign a blessing to one and a different blessing to another person. Um, to bring up another commandment, thou shalt not covet. Why is coveting wrong? Because what you're saying in your heart is, I deserve that. I need that. And it's laying on a charge on God saying, God, you haven't provided enough for me. But God has provided enough for us. And if we do find ourselves in need, we should pray to God. And we have promises that God will provide for our need. So uh, we shouldn't go around thinking that we have a right to our brother's property. If our brother, in the kindness of his heart, his or her heart, gives us um, what we need physically, then we should rejoice, thank them, and thank God. But it doesn't mean we inherently have the right to demand it from someone. Um, and ultimately God is Lord of the conscience. We have examples in scripture of sometimes where we are to forbid giving, uh, the giving of, uh, physical blessings to our brothers and sisters. For example, second Thessalonians three ten. for even when we were with you, this, we commanded you that if any would not work, neither should he eat. So now we're given a, a commandment. If that brother isn't working, you actually shouldn't give it to them, assuming they're able to work, obviously, because um, we're not to encourage laziness or sloth. So if God is Lord of the conscience, he is the one that directs us when we should give and when we should not give. So no brother has the right to say that property belongs to me. No. I and you all are stewards of what God has given to you. And thus, you need to make the decision about when to give and when not to give. And that is up to you. No man has the right to demand it. Yes, Andrew. Yeah, the very fact that we see in the parable of the uh, faithful uh, steward uh, that the different believers possessed different things and they were each judged for what they did with what God gave them. If 
implies that they have their own ownership of what God gave them. It wasn't just the collective property of the church. Otherwise, just the people who distributed out would have been condemned. Mm -hmm. Each individual is condemned for not being a good steward for what God has personally given mm -hmm. each of them. And that's, again, why Paul says in Ephesians, as we already saw, that uh, each individual's command towards that he, as an individual, can give. Mm -hmm. So while the early church to model the unity they had in Christ demonstrated that it was as if they had all one thing in common and they were willing to do that. And likewise, to this day, we should have that attitude that we're willing to give to our brothers everything that they have need of and that we're able to provide. Nevertheless, it's not a command to give up our uh, ownership of property. In fact, the rest of the New Testament very clearly shows that we do still have that mm -hmm. ownership and we're responsible for being a good steward with the that yeah, and that's an important point to remember. When I say private property, I don't mean it in the sense of we inherently own it. God owns everything. Everything that we have comes from God. So it's more like we're given it, we're renting it in a sense. And uh, God will require an answer of how we, how we acted with that property at the end of the age. Um, so does anybody have any questions about that or comments? It's true. So who, who would be trustworthy enough to, to manage that kind of money? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It'd be hard. It'd be a, just a difficult thing. Mm -hmm. It just, I don't know. It's very problematic. No, that's, that's, that's very true. Obviously, it's laid at uh, an office that no, no longer exists. What you would have to say is something to the effect of, oh, well, I guess we would lay it at the elders' feet today. Right. But, um, which maybe that is something we want to do. But again, that's an example, not a requirement. All right, question four. What does the confession say that we are not made one person with Christ? What is the importance of this qualification today? So this is a, a statement against pantheism. And pantheism is the idea that basically everything is God or things become God. We're not God, but he is. Exactly. Uh, yeah, we do not become God or gods as some and even some professed Christians teach. Could I get somebody to read 1 Corinthians 8, 6? <coughs> Whoever has it first. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. There is one God, and we are not that God. Uh, Colossians 1, 18 and 19. And then I'll, I'll read this one. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. So Christ is head of the body. The head is not the body, and the body is not the head. There's a distinction there. And uh, more importantly, uh, it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. The fullness of God dwelt in Jesus Christ. It does not dwell in us. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, but that is in a different sense than um, how uh, the fullness of deity dwelt in Jesus Christ. 
Could I get somebody to read 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16? So Jesus Christ is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, him only. And then verse 16, who only hath immortality. Now, obviously, if we are in Christ, we do have immortality in a sense. We will live forever. But Jesus in of himself has immortality. God in of himself has immortality. This is not something, this is something that's given to us, but we don't have it in of ourselves. So there's another distinction uh, about how we are not God. Um, Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. So fairly clear there that there's a distinction. God has glory that we will not have, and he won't give it to us. Um, could I get somebody to read Hebrews 8, or sorry, uh, 1, 8 through 9? And this is a quotation from Psalm 45. <clears throat> But of the sons, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Jesus was anointed with oil above, beyond his companions. So there is a difference there. We aren't one person in that sense, in Christ. And then finally, Isaiah 43, 10, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be any after me. So there's no gods coming after God. It's clear as day. Exactly. Yes. Part of being God is being the eternal God outside of time. So at a point of time, it's it's Yeah. Um, I would also commend uh, to you to read the, the description of the saints in heaven uh, in the book of Revelation. Nowhere are we given the idea that they've become gods, and we are given every indication that they are still separate from God. They're engaging in the worship of Him. Uh, so whatever our union of Christ is, it does not result in us becoming gods. Are there any questions on this before we move on? All right. In that case, question five. Briefly describe our union with Christ. So now that we know what union with Christ isn't, let's move on to what union with Christ is. And um, Waldron has three ways in which we are united to him. We are united in the plan of God. Could I get somebody to read Ephesians 1 4? Just as he chose us in him for the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Uh, we have to be chosen in him. There's no other way to be saved. There's Nobody's going to be saved apart from Christ. So we have to be chosen in him 
but in the plan of God, we are united to Christ. Um, Waldron's uh, second point is uh, we're united with Christ before God's law. Could I get somebody to read 2 Corinthians 5.21? He made him who knew no sin, no, mm-hmm. uh, uh, no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We might become the righteousness of God in him. That is how we are righteous before God. Not in of ourselves, we are righteous in him, because we have been united to him. Romans 6, 8, now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So we're united in that um, because we're dead with Christ, we're united to his death, we are also united to his resurrection. And then Romans 8, 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. So we're going to be glorified together with Christ. We're participating in that aspect of Christ. And this, this right here, these couple verses, this is the greatness of the gospel, right? Through faith, we are united to Christ. So when God looks at us, he sees Christ and Christ's righteousness. Not our filthy rags, but Christ's righteousness. And thus, when we die, we can actually enter into the presence of God because we now have an alien righteousness. We are united to Christ who lived the perfect life and did not sin. Um, And then uh, Waldron's final point, um, we are one with Christ in the spirit who gives life. Uh, Could I get somebody to read Romans 8, 2? So the spirit is the one that we've been set free or through whom we've been set free from the law of sin and death. Uh, could I get somebody to read first Corinthians six, 17 through 18. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. We fornication, every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that commit fornication sinneth against his own body. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, and 18. I apologize. That wasn't. What uh, know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Did I miss? God did I miss, but he is jo- who he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit? Uh, no, that was verse 17. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> Completely missed that, whatever. Um, uh, but that's that's the important part right there. But, but he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. And then uh, 2 Peter 1, 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And some have actually tried to use this verse to point uh, to prove that we do become God because it says we have become partakers of the divine nature. However, um, here we aren't partakers of the divine nature directly as if our nature has become the divine nature. Uh, but we have access to the divine nature through the spirit who lives in us and guides our steps. Uh, we who are united of Christ partake of his spirit and thus get the same fountain of spiritual life. And then above Waldron's points, I will also add we are united um, to him uh, and we exhibit the characteristics 
of Christ in our lives. If we have his spirit, we should begin to act like him more and more. And our lives will mirror his, his in other ways. Second Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So if we are trying to live our lives in Christ Jesus, we shall suffer as he suffered because the world hated him. And when they see him in us, they will hate us as well. Um, and then another point, in Christ we have what is his. We are able to participate in some of his other benefits. Um, could I get somebody to read Ephesians 2, 4 through 7? Yes. But God, who is rich in mercy, for this great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So here we see that um, we're made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And note, that's actually a present tense. So while we haven't fully realized that yet, we, haven't, we won't realize that quite yet, but um, there is a present reality to that, that we are currently seated in the heavenly places and that in the ages to come, God will show exceeding riches towards us through Christ. Um, Colossians 3, uh, 3 through 4. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. So, again, we will appear with him and have glory because of him. Daniel seven eighteen. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. So we are partakers of the kingdom through Christ. The kingdom is ours. We can say that. Um, Revelation 26. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but shall be. Uh, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, whatever your eschatological view is, um, the point is that we as believers will reign with Christ. So that is a we are participating in that aspect of his rule now. Christ is the one who, through whom um, all authority has been given on heaven and on earth. And in him, we participate in that rule. Um, does anybody have any questions or comments? Before we move on. All right. Quick. Go ahead. It's, it's uh, interesting because. Uh, yeah, we're, we're partakers like through the spirit, and uh, but it's like through the mediation of being united by the spirit to Christ spiritually. Like, um, and I was considering um, first Corinthians, first Corinthians 12, uh, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one God, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, have been all made to drink into one spirit. So it's, um, uh, yeah, so you're united to to Christ, um, but you're not made one person with Him, and then participated uh, through financial by the Spirit indwelling you. Um, 
scripture. Always good with more scripture. Uh, question six, how is union with Christ realized? Support your answer. Um, so we've already hinted at this, but union with Christ is realized through the indwelling of spirit and the exercise of faith. Um, could I get somebody to read Ephesians 3, 16 and 17? So Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. That is the means by which Christ dwells in us, and that's the means by which we're united to him. Did you have a question, Matt? Or you just... Oh, okay. It looked like you were raising your hand. Um, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So um, Christ lives in us. Second Corinthians 3, 17 through 18. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. So it is the spirit of the Lord that, uh, changes us. It's the one who unites us to Christ, and in him we are changed. Um, are there any questions or comments about that? All right. Question seven. What impact does the doctrine of the communion of the saints have on the modern emphasis of being your own person and maintaining one's individuality? So obviously in modern America culture, there's an emphasis on being unique. You got to be unique. You got to be special in some way. And what's really meant by that is that you've got to be like outstandingly unique or outstandingly special. Because obviously every single person is unique in some way. But uh, the emphasis is being on like, oh, well, you've got to be super unique. Yeah. Or being self-made or mm -hmm. self-sufficient. Yeah. Which none of us are. No. Yeah, and as an example of this, I was thinking about it, and oftentimes I'll see a lot of my Facebook friends saying, like, oh, I want to be unique. I don't want to, like, you know, have a family. I just want to travel the world and do something super special like that. And the fact that I, I see this a lot on my Facebook feed indicates that it's actually not that unique. It's not that unique of you. How Yes, and we're, we're going to go through several scriptures on that, but yes, exactly. Um, so even in the push of, to, oh, you've got to be unique and special, people have done what you've done before. People have thought the same thoughts that you've before. You're not the nearly... Fools. <laughs> that was the reason you battled that is because you live in a culture that values being unique. Yes. So it really is not that much of a Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we as Christians, we're not to be after that sort of like uniqueness or specialness that uh, people would appreciate us for how unique we are uh, or that we might be able to think more highly of ourselves. Like, look how special I am. You hear things like our strength is in our diversity. Mm -hmm. That's our strength is in our unity. 
we have to realize we're servants of God. Mm -hmm. And we, we are bought and paid with for by a price, the price of his son Jesus Christ. That's that's literally oh well, it's not the next verse, but the verse after that I'm gonna have us to read. So um uh, where was I? Yeah, so we are unique in the sense that we have a diversity of gifts and a diversity of likes, and we should uh, uh, exercise those. We're not literally to act and think exactly alike. Uh, we can have diversity of opinion, uh, but we ought to be unified and harmonious in uh, conduct. Could I get somebody to read uh, Romans twelve sixteen? Be of the same mind. And then Philippians two two. the same mind. First Peter three, eight. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and humble mind. And then I will read second Corinthians three, 11. Finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace and the God of love and peace shall be with you. So that's four, at least four, I don't know if there's more, places where we're told to be of one mind. That's not a, that's not a few places. Um, it's a repeated exhortation in the New Testament. So it's something that we should take seriously. Not that if it was only in one spot, we shouldn't take it seriously, but the repeated aspect of it does add an extra emphasis. Um, so when it comes to matters of faith and life, of the church, we should, if possible, be of one mind. The universe God created isn't pluralistic with many truths. Many times there's a single right answer, and we want to think in a way that comports with that right answer. Uh, our minds are to be governed by the scriptures, uh, that we might all have a mind like Christ and be in unity with one another. If that doesn't happen, it's actually, it's a tragedy. Um, so we should be seeking to be of one mind, although not compromising any truth. If unity has to be broken for a time because of disagreements, we should endeavor to be restored to unity as soon as possible. Um, does anybody have any questions or comments about that? All right. In that case, question eight. What are the biblical priorities for the practical expression of our communion with the saints? So the obvious one is love. The great commandment is this from John uh, 13, 34 through 35, or not the great commandment, the, the royal commandment is this uh, from John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. So, um, that's it. That's that's the foundation of our communion right there. Um, 
Christians don't exist for themselves. They exist to love one another. Um, 1 Peter 4.10, As every man have received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of man- the manifold gift grace of God. So we have received our gifts, and the purpose is to demonstrate our love to one another by using those gifts. Um, Romans 14, 7 through 8. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. So our entire life is to be um, to God's glory. Uh, we're to live to the Lord, and that means loving the brethren. First um, Corinthians uh, twelve twenty-five through twenty-seven, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And whether one member suffer, all members suffer with it; or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, ye are the brother, the body of Christ, and members in particular. So if one of us is suffering, we should, we in a sense do suffer with them, but we should suffer with them. And if one of them is honored, we should honor that person. Uh, we are obligated towards one another in that sense. So what does it mean to uh, love biblically speaking? Um, because obviously the world has a very different idea of what love is. Love is to affirm or to make someone happy, but that's not what we see biblically. Um, is giving a drug addict more drugs loving? No. No. From a worldly sense, they might think so because you're making the person happy. But for us, for Christians, love is to look out for the best for our brothers and sisters. Agape. What was that? Agape. Yes. I'd like love. And, and yes. Uh, and sometimes that does mean being tough. Being tough can be loving. And uh, other times it does mean sacrificing our money and time for them. And um, ultimately, um, the highest example of what love looks like is um, from Christ Jesus. And that's Philippians 2. Do you want to read that for us, Bruce? Sorry to put you on the spot. It's uh, 2 verses uh, 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which you also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Christ is our great example. And he, being God, and had every right to be worshipped and remain in heaven forever and not to suffer, gave it all up for us. And that is a demonstration of the love that we should have for one another, to give it all up, to not consider ourselves as anything important. Yes, Andrew. The book of First John uh, gives us uh, many examples and signs of a believer. One of that is love for the brethren, but it also gives us a sign of what loving the brethren looks like in First John five, verse uh, two. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. So 
there's never a case when our love for God is detached from keeping the commandments of God. So people who try to pit those against each other wrongly mm -hmm. according to scripture. And one of those commandments of God is Leviticus 19, 17, thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart, thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. So sometimes loving your brother actually looks like what the world would call hate, mm -hmm. which means correcting them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, my family, I'm the worst. Just because, you know, they think that I'm just so, oh, holier than thou, because, you know, because I tell the truth and talk to them about Christ. And I'm just way down. Well, we love you, Carol. So. <laughs> um, John 15, 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. This is the level of love that we should have for one another. Up to that, willing to lay down our lives, even to the point of death. Um, so loving the brethren doesn't always include the flashy things like laying down your life or selling, uh, selling your own property to help a brother out. But it can be just the simple ordinary tasks that we do, like helping out with a fellowship meal. That's loving and serving your brother. Um, cleaning up after. Cleaning up after. Um, attending prayer meeting and praying for someone that's loving your, your brother. Um, so it doesn't have to be flashy. We can do it throughout our lives in ordinary ways. Um, also we should be concerned to make sure that we have a fellowship with the saints, uh, with all the saints in our church and not just our friends. Um, there are always going to be people that we like to be around more than others. Um, and that's perfectly acceptable. People have different shared interests, um, so they're going to congregate together, but we want to make sure that um, we do, we aren't neglecting any of the saints in this body, that we are trying to um, treat them on the same level as others. Uh, we have the same obligations towards everyone who is a member of this church, and we should be careful not to overlook that. And uh, we should not also be focused only on our church. Uh, we see in the New Testament that churches uh, frequently would try to help out other churches by taking up collections and then uh, bringing to them. So we should look to the churches around us and in the age of the internet, even, you know, people in different countries. Um, and uh, we should uh, try to help them as if they were a member of our local body. Um, and then beyond that, uh, there are people that are unbelievers and are not yet in the body of Christ. And we want to love them by proclaiming the gospel to them, that they might be saved and become a member of the body with us. Um, so obviously they're not in communion with us yet, but you've got to treat people as if one day they might be in communion with them, with you and uh, love them in that way. I do know what you mean. <laughs> we should, uh, we should love our enemies and those that, do everything to make us not want to love them, even if it's hard. But yes, I, I know what you mean. And there is, well, there, you do have situations where you need to be separate from yes. people who just totally hate us. Yes. You know, and you can love them from afar, like praying for them and, you know, not downing them to other people and stuff like mm -hmm. that, getting into that kind of yeah. Ultimately, again, God is Lord of the conscience. So if in your conscience, it's like 
I do want to witness to the person, but it's better that I'm away from them for a time, then that's perfectly fine. Sometimes I find that the world influences me more than I influence the world. And I just, I don't know, it's frustrating because, you know, I want to have better impact. You know, I do have some friends who are not paid. And I just like to have a greater impact on mm-hmm. my whole family. I'm, I'm surrounded by unbelievers. So um, I want to be a good witness, but sometimes mm-hmm. it's just so hard to. Well, well, you do need to be on guard for yourself, too. That's true. So even if it's like, oh, I could potentially uh, witness to this person, but it's in a sinful environment, like, well, we shouldn't be going to sinful environments, you know, so... I mean, like, I'm the only one in my family, too, that's saved, well, not of the one side, family, but in my yeah. sibling family. <clears throat> and, you know, they knew when I became a Christian, they knew exactly. I witnessed to them and witnessed to them and loved them and repented towards them, you know, when I was being difficult or whatever, you know. And when I was learning new things, I would go back and say, you know what, you know, I used to believe this, but now the Bible is showing me new things, and I would try to explain. And they just like to pat me on my head and go, Carol, you are the youngest. We know better. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, okay. (laughs) Yeah, you just... I think sometimes you can do damage if you try, you know, trying more when people are just totally against it and then trying. It just makes them frustrated. And, you know, I don't know that that's really a good thing for the gospel. Either. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't have to try every single moment, every single time you're with somebody, right? Uh, like, come on, Sean. Yes, I know. <laughs> exactly. Apostles eventually, when they went to cities, said if they do not receive you, wipe the dust off of your feet. There is a there's a moment exactly. that the comfort we can have though for even the most hardened of sinners in our own family is that you know we believe in an effectual calling and the Lord uses means. So part of it's just praying that the Lord would open more doors and things like that, and just being ready, praying for them. Um, but ultimately, salvation of the Lord. So I definitely think that's important. Just being there, being loving. He's doing that. The Lord's in control. And if he's going to save the hardest sinner in your family, he can, he can, he will. Amen. I got to say, we have to be an example of not being to the left or being to the right. We've got to follow the straight path. Mm-hmm. Amen. All right. So in conclusion, why is Zoom Church not enough? Um, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's very unsatisfying. 
So Zoom church is not enough because it detaches us from the life of the body of Christ. Um, Christ did not intend us to be Lone Ranger Christians, self-sufficient on our own. Uh, we need one another. Yeah. And even if you think you are self-sufficient, if you withdraw yourself from a local assembly, then you are depriving the members of that assembly of the benefit of you being there. Um, obviously, you do need you do need a local assembly. But even if you were to think that you still should be in church because you were to be benefiting your brothers and sisters, you're not to be an island on your own. Yep. Scripture also gives us example when you come together and says greet each other with a with a holy kiss. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, that was a cultural thing, but I don't think a, a hand waving over Zoom uh, suffices for that. <laughs> for our own cultural lives, we do for that And you can turn your whole self off on Zoom. You know, you can mm-hmm. just be there as a listener. Some people don't even. Yeah, some people go black, and you can't even see people. And that's no good either. Yeah, it was good for when there was no option. Yeah, better than nothing. Yeah. We're not going to complain. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, We should have a desire to be together, even though we're not always able to do it. Mm -hmm. And with modern communication techniques, there's all kinds of ways to Mm-hmm. All right. Well, with that, I think I'm uh, done. Are there any, uh, <laughs> like there's one last sentence for me to read and I'm like, yeah, at this point. Uh, does anybody have any final questions or comments before we close? Um, I think that a really, really good uh, uh, brother and sister that we have here is is the meal train that we have going. It has really, really benefited me. And I people have been so kind to us. Mm-hmm. Meal train? Meal train. Oh, meal train. We're talking food, baby. <laughs> but, I mean, people have come over and taken me and Ronald to doctor's appointments and dentist appointments, and people have been so kind. And they have come over and sat with me, and it's awesome. All right, anybody else? Well, seeing as we went long last week, we'll end five minutes early this week. So, uh, yeah, let's let's close in a word of prayer. <laughs> <laughs>